Now, the next film to talk about is an indie film, though with Emily Blunt, who is a kind of doe-eyed movie star, who I guess was indie slumming it, and I think to good effect, and uh, two other actresses, and she's got this annoying habit that some women have of having her sleeves go halfway up her hands and making her look like a um, retarded child. This is sort of an annoying habit that, that women have to look cutesy and, and all that. But anyway, some women. So in this movie, which is really well acted and it was semi-improvised and so on, which which is always gives it a kind of immediacy and realism. And I, To be able to fake realism on screen is, is really quite a challenge. Uh, one of the things that, you know, celebrity is associated with sociopathy in study after study. And one of the reasons I think that's the case is to, like, you have to kind of not be sensitive to the presence of other people in order to be a really good actor, which is why really good actors tend to be nuts and and all that. So, I mean, if you and I have a camera halfway up our nose and 50 people around us and people holding mic, like, like mics and, and lighting setups and all that kind of stuff, then to be a good actor, you have to pretend that no one's there. And no one's better at pretending <laughs> that no one's there than a narcissist. As Marlon Brando said, uh, acting is an empty and useless profession. And Johnny Depp has been talking about that lately as well. Hopefully that indicates some sort of growth on their part. But anyway. So in this movie... A man is sent by his best friend, a girl, a woman, to, to go and stay at her father's cottage. And he goes there, and her sister is staying there. They have sex. And it turns out that the sister, the woman who's staying there, is wants to have a baby and basically pierces the condom that she provides so that it kind of looks like a, a lawn sprinkler. And that's how she's going to have her baby. Also turns out that the original woman who sent him up there actually loves him. So it's all these complications, right? The woman who sends him loves him. Her sister has sex with him, which makes it awkward. And then it turns out that she is, uh, she might be pregnant with his baby and so on. He gets really angry that she stole his sperm and so on, right? And then the movie ends with them in the bathroom on a pee stick trying to find out if the woman is pregnant, the sister is pregnant. And you don't find out whether she is or she isn't. It's on Netflix. And it's, I think it's worth watching. First of all, there is the verbally eloquent, incredibly empty cynicism of a lot of the Generation Y people. I mean, my friends growing up were so incredibly verbally fluent and particularly um, funny with observations, with mockery, with jokes... I mean, you know, boy, people who think that I'm funny, man, you should have been around the people I grew up with. Holy crap. I couldn't even remotely keep up. I mean, they were just literally bitingly uh, funny and uh, really, uh, really challenging to keep up. They could riff, you know. I, mean, I thought, I mean, geez, I always sort of thought that they should have made more of an effort to, to utilize that and so on, but you know, cynicism uh, kills, right? Cynicism is... Uh, the world will hurt me no matter what. So I will hurt the word world first and so on, right? Which I think is a more useful definition than that annoying one by <laughs> Oscar Wilde. A cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing.
Oh, that's clever. It's a deepity. What does it mean? I don't know, but it sure is clever. So, I thought that the, the, the verbal adroitness and the characterization of them... The verbal adroitness is really interesting. The verbal intelligence is really interesting because it comes so often from emotional immaturity. Language is so often a scar tissue that heals over the wound of a heart. And so that is something that I think is tragically common. And whenever you see people, you know, present company included, whenever you see people who have uh, very strong verbal skills, look for the wounds in their heart that the verbal skills have grown over to distract other people from. And I mean, I obviously talked openly about the hurts in my childhood and youth. And I hope that I have taken the hurts and scar tissue and put them to, to good, put them to the, to the virtue, put them to the service of virtue. But uh, verbal skills arise out of an inability to have spontaneous emotional connection. Right. I mean, if you're an anthropologist, you're going to end up knowing a lot more about the local culture than the local culture even knows of itself because you can't experience it. You have to describe it. Right, because you can't experience what is actually happening in the world, you have to have language to describe it. Right? Poetry arises from a lack of emotional experience, which is why so many poets are ridiculously immature, like Percy Bysshe Shelley and so on. For more on this, read Intellectuals. That's a really, really great book. Paul Johnson uh, is the author, who also wrote another great book called Modern Times. Anyway, I've talked about that before. So we describe that which we cannot feel. And so I had a conversation recently. I don't know if the guy's going to allow us to release it, but I was listening to Convo recently with a real cynic. You know, in the grand scheme of things, in the bigger picture, which is always the prequel to an elephant foot soul crushing <laughs> experience of what's next. You know, we're all going to die. What does it really matter? Uh, and so on. No, the sun's going to go out. The universe is going to end. Humanity is nothing more than a stain on the infinite carpet of the universe, blah, blah, blah. Now, he was describing all of this as if he was describing the world rather than himself. Life has no meaning, you know, to which I asked, okay, so if life is missing meaning, how would you know if it had meaning? What would have to be added for it to have meaning? And he couldn't answer that. Kind of important. If you say something's missing, then you should be able to say what needs to be added. And I said it can't be that life lacks meaning because God doesn't tell us what to do, because then it, it wouldn't have meaning. It would have only obedience, right? That's all it would have is, is terrorized obedience. That can't, that can't be meaning. Otherwise, the greatest meaning is to be unjustly imprisoned and told what to do 24 hours a day. That would be to give your life meaning. No, that would only be to give your life enforced obedience, uh, which is, of course, what religious commandments and hell and all that do. But he was... He had a girlfriend of about a year, and he was telling her in great detail about how life was meaningless, and there was no value and no happiness in life, and this and that and the other. And she was crying, and I asked him why he thought she was crying. And he's, oh, because she's finally accepting that there's no meaning, and I said, no. And he tried three or four times to, un to sort of figure out why the woman was crying, and it was all a sort of abstract philosophical intellectual understanding. And uh, my daughter asked me what the show was about and she got it in about a tenth of a second 
right? So I was saying, well, there was a man who was saying that nothing in life makes him happy, and he was telling this to a girl he kissed. And she said, nothing in life makes him happy, even her? No wonder she was crying. Yes, she was crying because when you say life is meaningless, you are saying to everyone in your life, you are meaningless. If life is everything, every subset of that must also be meaningless. You can't have more meaning in the subset than in the superset, and therefore... If I say, ten people in the woods are all lost, one person can't not be lost. Because there's a subset of everyone is lost, and therefore one person can't. So, if life is meaningless, then everything included in your life and all the people in it are also meaningless to you, and that's why she was crying. But he couldn't understand that. He had incredible verbal skills. Probably still does. Amazing verbal skills. But verbal skills are inflamed to cover up for a lack of emotional connection and to distract people from your lack of emotional connection, to keep them off balance, to show your superiority, and to hide your vulnerability. Philosophy is the tombstone over the dead heart. For the most part. (laughs) We avoid the absolute statements. And I like to think that I've resurrected my heart and also kept philosophy alive, which is why what we talk about here tends to be unlike other philosophy. So in the movie, the man who has these great verbal skills and later in the movie says he's tired of being dead and, and it's so immature, he, like when his bicycle breaks, he throws it against the wall repeatedly and curses and screams at it and so on. Yay, he's going to be great with a baby, right? But they have these cynical, fluent verbal skills and no emotional connections whatsoever. And so what happens is the sister, the one who was up at the cottage already, who sperm-jacked, right, who stole the sperm, she might be pregnant. And her sister says, after a suitable amount of pouting, her sister says, you know, you can come and live with me. I have a spare room. And uh, I will take the 3 a.m. feedings, and I will be there for you. Uh, you're not alone, and blah 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 Right? And this is, boy, you know, (laughs) I don't mean to sound cynical after talking about it so long, but I got to tell you that I think this is all quite mad. This is all quite mad. Because when you have a child, young lady, when you have a child... People aren't going to be there for you. <laughs> They're not. Trust me, I have a child. And it certainly is true that my child requires a few more resources than your average impoverished village. But uh, if people are not going to be there for you. Like this was like, what, 10 or 15 years ago? 15 years ago, probably in Friends, right? So Rachel got pregnant and she's like, I'm freaking out. I'm pregnant. I'm freaking out. And all her friends said, there's nothing to be scared of, nothing to be freaked out about. Don't worry about it, because you are not alone in this. We are all going to be there for you. Don't sweat it. You know, we are going to be there whenever you need us to take care of this baby. We're going to come with you to the doctor. We're going to come and help you. We're going to be there. We're going to be supportive of you. You are not alone in this, blah 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 And it all is a massive and immensely dangerous lie. Look, 
If friends could replace husbands, the kids of single parents, who I assume have friends, wouldn't be so screwed up. Almost universally. Friends cannot replace husbands. Right? Friends cannot replace husbands. Because they don't live with you and they're not committed to the child. Right? You, you get that, right? We are biological beings. Our own offspring uh, are, are what we provide resources to, what we, what, we, uh, what we give all our stuff to, all our time and our energy. Having a child, having a baby in particular, is literally a 24-hour job. Literally, not figurative, literally a 24-hour job. You don't know when they're going to wake up. You have to be there all the time. There's breastfeeding, there's comforting, there's playing. It is a a 24-hour-a-day job. And unless someone, a friend, is going to move in with you and put their entire life on hold, pretty much, except maybe their work, if they're going to get up, go to work, come home and spend time with you and the baby and get up three or four times in the middle of the night with you. Although that isn't going to work that well if you're breastfeeding and so on. Unless your friend is willing to do that. Unless your friend, if your friends say, don't worry, we're going to be there for you every step of the way. They say, okay, you say, okay, when are you moving in? Uh, what? Let's say your friend is half an hour away from your house and your baby gets up for the third time in three hours at three o'clock in the morning. And you call your friend. And you wake your friend up and you say, listen, I really need, do you remember that support you promised me? My baby is up for the third time. I need you to come over here. I need you to get out of your warm bed. I need you to get dressed, brush your teeth, get in your car, drive over here, and they're going to be there in an hour, which means that the baby is probably back to sleep. And then you're going to say, well, I need you to stay with me from four o'clock in the morning until uh, eight o'clock in the morning. I don't mind if you nap, but in case the baby gets up again so I'm not so alone. I mean, seriously. Do you have friends like that who are willing to do this maybe three or four or five or six or seven times a week? They're going to say, listen, I'm so sorry. I got work in the morning. I'm exhausted. I can't come to your house in the middle of the night in case your baby wakes up again and you need some company. I can't do it. Which is not to say friends are no help. They are. But unless they're moving in and are going to be there, moved in with you for the next 20 years, or 18 years at least, unless your friends are willing to become your husband, to contribute financially, to contribute time, to contribute energy, to contribute resources, to put everything else on hold, to not date other people, and not heaven forbid, get married themselves, or heaven forbid, even more, have children on their own. They will not be there for you. Don't be fooled. Yeah, they're going to say all the nice Hallmark card sentiments. Oh, we're going to be there with you every step of the way. You say, oh, wow, every step of the way. Well, that's fantastic. How incredibly kind. Um, I guess we're going to move in together, right? Because that's what it means to be with me every step of the way. And you are going to perform all of the functions of a co-parent basically you're going to be my husband but we're not going to have sex and you are going to stay with me throughout the entire time that this child is growing up 
and you're going to get up in the night and you're going to come with me to the doctors and you're going to play with the kid uh, for hours a day and you are going to put everything else on your life and hold and no dating right because dating would be infidelity to you being there for me every step of the way and no getting married and no having kids of your own because that would be like being married to me but having a second family family that would be totally wrong right don't fool yourself and don't be fooled by the dangerous pseudo kindness of your friends of course they're going to say the right thing they're not going to say oh you got pregnant and you have no husband? Oh, man, what a disaster. What a disaster. How bad for the kid. You know, yeah, I'll, you know, maybe once every two weeks you can drop him off for an hour or two. You know, let's say you got to go to the doctor, you don't want your kid to come. And if it's, if I'm available, if it's convenient for me, if I'm home, if I'm not busy, yes, I will be happy to have your kid stay with me for a couple of hours. Um, not if they're babies, because I don't really know what to do with babies. But, you know, when they get to be sort of four or five and they can chat, then, yes, you can drop your kid off for me. You know, no more really than twice a month, just for an hour or two each time. And that's, you know, that's not bad, right? That will be pretty much, best case scenario, the extent to which your friends are going to be into your baby. And this is why... They're going to say, you know, boy, if you have a baby and you don't have a husband to help you raise that baby, you're fucked. You are screwed. Because you're going to be doing it all alone. You're going to be putting twice the resources with half the time. Because, you know, someone's got to work, I assume, right? So this fantasy that somehow you're going to stitch together a family out of two sisters and someone whose sperm was stolen, who himself confesses, he says to the woman who's in love with him, the girl who sent him up to the cottage, he says, as your friend, I would advise against you having me as a boyfriend. I am unemployed, I'm financially unstable, I'm emotionally a basket case. And somehow there's this fantasy that the sociopath who stole the sperm that the narcissist who had immediate boundaryless sex with the woman he met an hour or two before and the other woman who's in love with the narcissist that this somehow is going to stitch together a fine old family for this doomed baby I mean dear God in heaven what is wrong with getting married and having children. I mean, that's the free market solution, <laughs> right? I mean, that is what happened when governments weren't involved in screwing and making babies, right? When governments weren't involved, what developed was marriage. And why did marriage develop? Well, for, for very simple reasons. That we are one of the slowest developing species on the planet, that children require, human children require enormous amounts of resources to achieve uh, reasonable levels of independence. Like at least 12 to 15 years, probably more, right? I mean, the human brain doesn't mature until 25 years. Dear God, we're like slow rinse elephants as far as that goes. Just add water and then turn to stone waiting for the plant to grow. So that's nuts. The amount of resources human babies require, it's 
it's staggering. I still am processing it. It's unbelievable. People say uh, you have a baby to, to bring you closer to the mom. Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, my, my wife and I are lucky to get 10 minutes of, of adult conversation in a day until Isabella goes to bed. There was a little bit more when she was younger, but now whatever we're talking about, she wants to know what we're talking about. And that's perfectly fine and perfectly fair. So then we have to downshift. Like I'm trying to upper language skills like we're plowing our way through uh, Pride and Prejudice, you know, with a little bit of downshifting for her language skills. But she wants to know everything that we're talking about. And there's a few times where we'll say, sorry, we can't right now. But for the most part, we then have to stop the conversation to downshift it to her and then to explain it to her. And then by the time that's all done, I don't know what the hell we were talking about, right? But you simply don't have a lot of time for adult-adult conversations when you have toddlers. It just it doesn't happen. The amount of resources, staggering the amount of resources that are required to raise a healthy child. And so marriage was developed for two basic reasons. One, resources from the man. And two, monogamy from the woman. That's all it comes down to. That's what marriage is for. That's what it's all about. The woman wants to make sure that somebody is going to be responsible for bringing her resources when she has a baby, when she's pregnant or when she has babies. Because remember, of course, in the past, with no birth control, women were pretty much perpetually pregnant. Perpetually breastfeeding, disabled, as far as any kind of productive work went, for the most part. And so what is marriage? Well, marriage is the covenant which says, I will exchange monogamy in return for resources. I will give you exclusive control over my reproductive organs, says the woman, and the man says, I will give you mostly exclusive control over my muscles. Right? Both give up control of the body, the woman with the uterus and the man with his productive labor, whatever, even if it's intellectual, it still requires muscles to type, right? That's the basic deal. That's what marriage is for. And this is why for a man to have an affair generally was not considered as bad as a woman having an affair throughout history. Uh, because the man can still provide resources if he has an affair. There's a problem with it because now his resource attentions are split. But he can still provide resources if he's rich and he has an affair. And the idea that rich men can have affairs and it's not as bad as poor men having affairs or women as a whole having affairs, I mean, this is why. Because a man who's got a couple of million dollars can have an affair and support two households and therefore is not fundamentally breaking the covenant of give me enough resources. Right? The woman doesn't need exclusive use of the man's body. She needs enough use of the man's body to have resources to raise her kid. Their kid, right? So a man who's wealthy, who has affairs, is not fundamentally breaking the covenant. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's wrong and all that. And there's vows. But from a sort of biological standpoint, it's not as bad. Now, a woman who has an affair is fundamentally breaking the covenant if she's fertile, right? Because a woman who has an affair is giving up the exclusive control over her reproductive system that the whole, that's the whole point of her getting married, the whole point of marriage from the female standpoint or rather from the male standpoint. Why he wants marriage is to have to make sure that he's not investing resources in somebody else's kid. As Chris Rock says, you know, men's lies and women's lies are different. Man's lie is, yeah, I was at stands on Friday night. A woman's lie is, sure, this is your baby. <clears throat> right. So, I mean, that's what marriage is about. The woman wants a guarantee of enough resources to raise her children without starving to death. And the man wants a guarantee 
that the babies are his, which is why throughout history, up until quite recently, throughout history, up until I think the 70s, any child born in a marriage was considered the child of the husband, no matter what. I mean, he could come out green with polka dots. He could be impregnated by space aliens. He could come out with an afro to a white couple. doesn't matter. You are the father if you are married to the woman, and that's the deal. Or that's how paternity was solved before paternity tests. If you're married to the woman and she has a baby, that is your baby. Now, if you're not married to the woman and she has a baby, you have no claim. Now, that changed in the 70s and the 80s where men could then have a legal claim to uh, children uh, even though they weren't married to the mother. But that was really the function of marriage, to guarantee resources to the woman and to guarantee paternity to the man. That's what it was all about. It's fundamentally for kids, for children. That's what's fu- Children and the need for resources and the need for paternity. Right? A woman always knows the kid is his, the man doesn't, right? That's why there were chastity belts and so on, right? And the fact that some women, I mean, a lot of women are driven by, at least unconsciously, by hypogamy, which is the desire to trade up men, right? To, to, to get a man with more resources and so on. Like, the, you know, the way that men sort of trade in older wives for younger women. Well, women have this desire to trade in their current men for men with more resources. And the best way to do this, as Simon Cowell is finding out these days, is you get pregnant with the richer man's baby, and then you can ratchet yourself up to a higher class and more money and so on, right? So that's what, I mean, that's what, that's what marriage is. That's how it develops. That's what it's for. That's my kid. Give me resources. Right? And, and that's why the, the traditional exchange is attractiveness for money. Right? As the song says, your mama's rich. Your mama, sorry, your daddy's rich and your mama's good looking. That's the trade. Beauty and fertility for money and resources, which is why men get more attractive as they age and women get less attractive as they age, right? Anthony Quinn can have a baby when he's in his 70s, but a woman in her 70s can't, right? This is why it's such a shame when women squander their sexual attractiveness on idiots. I mean, boy, oh boy. What am I? Anyway, we'll get into that another time. But that's what marriage is developed for. Now we have paternity tests and so on, so it's a little bit different, but the fundamental mechanics remain the same. We commit to each other for the raising of children. And the reason that it's lifelong rather than... Why the, the reason why it's until death do us, do, do us part rather than until our children are grown is because a woman hits menopause when her labor and energies are more profitably sustained for the gene pool in taking care of grandchildren than attempting to coax another baby out of eggs that are 50 years old. Right, so you stay together for the long term so that you can take care of grandchildren. And marriage is fundamentally, at least in the second half of life, pro-woman, right? Because the woman has become much less valuable, the man has become much more valuable, but monogamy, which is now slanted in favor of um, the woman, is what is considered to be the standard, right? The woman has become... I mean, the man can go and have another family, right? And then he has more of his genes to sire than simply taking care of his grandchildren. A man who's had some success, who has some resources, can go and have another family when he's 50 or 45 or whenever his kids are grown. 
but um, the, until death to us part is is a way of making sure that the loss of value that the woman has for as far as the gene pool goes uh, is not she's not abandoned by the man and so it becomes very sort of pro-woman in the second half of life uh, which I think is is kind of important to remember but that's what marriage is all about it's not that complicated but this idea that you can somehow stitch together these Franken families is um, I mean it's pretty tragic I mean it's pretty ridiculous and it really is tragic the degree to which people have uh, somehow believed or accepted this right uh, how sad uh, this is this great possibility that, oh you know now now the woman can control her fertility uh, with the pill uh, you know we don't need any you know uh, we don't need any traditional structures we've got hormones <laughs> you know I mean it's crazy and this is why of course so much control historically was exercised over teenage sexuality I mean prior to the welfare state the parents had a direct financial interest in controlling female and male sexuality when they were teenagers because uh, if the teenager has a baby who ends up raising it well parents right and of course the problem is as well that this is something else that isn't generally talked about but it's important. And it's sort of embarrassing to have to talk about this stuff because it's so obvious, but it doesn't seem obvious to a lot of people, so I will. I will. So, uh, ladies, when you have a baby, your market value in the dating arena plummets for anything other than casual sex. Ladies, I repeat it again. When you have a baby, your value in the dating pool plummets to negatives. This is kind of important, right? There's a scene in As Good As It Gets where Helen Hunt is trying to neck with some young kid and her baby wakes up and spits up and she tries to go back and net and, and kiss him and he's got, she's got baby spit up on her neck and, oh, it's a bit too much reality for me and all that, right? I mean, I've never dated a woman who has kids. I mean, that's messed up. I remember listening to some black guy I mean, the only reason it's important that he's black is it's such a big issue in the black community. Basically saying, should I date a woman who has a kid or who has kids? And he's like, well, i got to tell you, no. First of all, you can't have loud sex. Some kid will come and try and find out what's going on and bloody blah, blah. Secondly, uh, how involved do you get with the kids? Do you get them birthday presents? Uh, are you responsible for that kind of stuff? I mean, how, how does it work when you are dating a woman who's got three kids and their birthdays are coming up, uh, do you take them out for parties, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that gets kind of complicated. And she, of course, wants you to have this relationship with the kids, but you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, you don't want to break the kids' hearts if it doesn't work out with the mom, and at the same time, you don't want to pretend like they don't exist, so it's complicated. And he said, uh, his word's not mine. He said, also, what if there's some thug around who's the original dad who kind of resents you banging his ex-girlfriend and, and being around his kids and giving them presents. I mean, who knows what the hell that lunatic's going to do. Um, so, you know, on the whole, no. Uh, it's not a good idea to date single moms. Uh, it's messy and it's complicated and it's expensive, right? I mean, if you want to start taking care of her kids, well, you know, and then if you have a kid with her, then you have one kid that's yours and say three kids that aren't. I mean, is that going to give you some favoritism? Is that going to create some family tension? 
yeah, it seems sort of inevitable, right? Anytime you say no to the kids who aren't yours, uh, you're going to be accused of, you know, you just like your kid because he's yours kind of thing. So it's really kind of a mess to, um, to date single moms. And also, of course, if she's getting alimony from her ex if she was married, then that's going to kind of interfere with you maybe getting married. You getting married, it's going to cut that off for, uh, in a lot of situations and so on. So it's a, I mean, it's a complete mess. And, you know, when you have babies or toddlers or teenagers or what have you, if you have kids and you're a woman... Guys will have sex with you, but they're pretty much not going to date you. Like I had a friend, he, he was going through this many years ago. I had a friend who's going through a really tough time in his marriage. And his wife was, I went for a walk with his wife and she had a baby, a new baby, about six months old. And she was like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to divorce him. I'm going to go marry some nice doctor and lawyer or whatever, right? And I said, person's name, are you crazy? You, you got a baby. Like no rich, successful, attractive lawyer is going to want to marry you or date you in any serious way when you have a baby. Well, you're going to go away for the weekend? Are you going to go out for dinner and leak boob juice all over your top and then have to go and pump in the bathroom and then have to rush home because you've got to feed your kid? I mean, that's not what dating is. I don't know. Why is it even relevant to say this? Why is it even... I mean, it's like reminding people that the world is, is a sphere. But it does need to be said. If you, I mean, you may get married if you have kids. You may date it. But this, this, these are just low rent, low self-esteem, ridiculous men. A man who's confident, who's successful, who's a winner, who is mature, is going to have enough brains to recognize how complicated and expensive and unproductive biologically it's going to be to date a woman who's got kids. Plus, if you're not around for the kids' first five years, you will never be any authority. You will never be able to tell that kid what to do. What are they going to say? You're not my dad. You're not my dad! Screw you, old white guy. Right, so whether it's that way or something nicer, you cannot be the authority figure, any kind of authority figure in those kids' life. You certainly can't be any kind of disciplinarian, for want of a better phrase. You cannot be any kind of authority figure in those kids' lives if you weren't around for the first couple of years. I don't mean consistently around and not in the last day of their fourth year. And so what do you got? I mean, you've got a situation where you're going to be spending a lot of time with those kids, but you have no authority over those kids. And please understand, I'm a peaceful parenting guy. I'm just talking about what, what people generally understand. Why would you do that? I mean, you would do that because you're such a hopeless loser as a man that you figure this is the best you can do. You know, in order to get sex, you're willing to have crappy times in blended families um, because that's the best you can do. I mean, clearly, if you could do better, you would do better than date or marry some single mom and try and struggle with the raising of some other guy's kids and oh man I mean it's just a mess and so this is why another reason why in the past really until the rise of the welfare state 
society put a huge amount of resources into controlling the sexuality of teenagers. Because massive resource drain on the parents, uh, a real mess for the um, teenager's life, right? Assuming she's breastfeeding, you know, what's she going to do for a year or two? Hang around the kid, breastfeed, try and take care of it, but no resources, so it has to, that has to come from the parents. Which means the parents have fewer resources for grandchildren, which is, you know, the more responsible and, and better way to, to do it. Better for the kids, for sure. And so all of this stuff is important. And, and of course, uh, when the 15-year-old or 16-year-old or 17-year-old or 18-year-old has a baby, no man's going to want to marry her. Because it speaks to character, it speaks to self-discipline, it speaks to, I mean, teenagers who have, teenage women who have babies are basically saying, I'm an idiot. I have no capacity to defer gratification. I have no capacity to think ahead. And I dated some guy who wouldn't even marry me. And I had sex with some guy who wouldn't do the right thing. So I have terrible taste in men. And I'm an idiot. Let's get married! <laughs> right? It's a clear sign of a, a, a pitifully bad gene pool and a pitifully underfunctioning brain. I don't have sympathy, blah, blah, blah. Like I get the, the girls that they grow up without fathers. And I mean, I have sympathy for that. I really do. But the reality remains the same. And this is why to literally avoid catastrophic negatives to the gene pool and family relationships and so on, you had to put tight reins on a female sexuality um, when, when kids were young, and male sexuality too, but everyone gets you can't really restrain male sexuality, so you focus on the women, right? It's a Sandra D before and after shot, right? Only in the 60s and afterwards could you have a movie like Grease where, you know, the slut walk is, is the breakthrough, right? Although even that, you have, uh, what's her name, Rizzo? I feel like a broken typewriter. I think I skipped a period. She's terrified she's pregnant. And so what used to happen, of course, is the, 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 the reins were put on female sexuality, and then what would happen is if, the female sec- if those reins didn't work and the woman got pregnant, the girl got pregnant, then she'd be sent away, she'd have the baby, and the baby would be put up for adoption, which is fine. You know, they'd, they'd find some, some suitable couple, right? They'd find some suitable couple who couldn't have kids or wanted more kids, and they would make sure that the couple was older, that they had resources, that the marriage was stable, that they were good parents, and they would then give that baby to those parents, and that baby would do fine. Uh, Adopted babies have no worse outcomes than naturally conceived and uh, born babies. They're fine. They don't know. And even if they find out later, it's still not a problem because, you know, it's their best chance to get into a stable family is to be adopted because it sure as hell, sure as hell isn't going to happen with a teenage pregnancy. So this was, of course, in a sense, the free market. In other words, when the mistakes... I mean, fundamentally, teenage pregnancy remains a mistake on the part of the parents, which is why it's not unfair that the parents pay for it, right? Uh, because you have failed to raise your daughter in such a way that she's not going to get pregnant. It's really not that hard to not get pregnant, right? I mean, just don't have sex, have non vaginal sex, um, condom, pill, whatever, right? It's not that complicated tonight. It's not brain surgery to pop a pill or slap a rubber on your John Thomas, right? 
So, if the teenager gets pregnant, then it is pretty much the parents' fault for not raising that kid and, and not instructing them and not taking care of them and not monitoring and, and all that kind of stuff. And if... And, and so it's the parents' response. That's why the parents would usually with the bonds end up paying for it, right? Through time and resource raising the kid or whatever. Which is why the parents would then have the decision to give the kid up for adoption. And, and that's the way that the natural aggregation of responsibility and consequence helped to shuttle children from disastrous teenage single momdom to perfectly fine being adopted by a stable coupledom, right? Much better for the kids. You know, I mean, this is not my argument. But the argument is, I think it's a good argument, it's a true argument, it's a fair argument, that single moms are incredibly selfish. Because they are choosing to have children without a father, which means that they're choosing to harm their children for the sake of their own preferences to have a child. You know, if you don't have a dad, don't have a child. If you don't have a husband, don't have a child. I mean, it's, it's selfish, it's destructive. It's harming the child. Get mad at me all you want, but you cannot argue with the statistics. I mean, you can, but you're just an idiot if you do. It's ridiculous. You just have to look up the statistics. And I've got a whole presentations on them, and it's catastrophic. No single worse predictor of a negative outcome for a child than being raised by a single mom. No single worse predictor for the outcomes. Worse than anything to do with class or race or gender or national. I mean, it's the worst single factor. So it's incredibly destructive for children. You know, we, we get that moms who smoke like chimneys around kids are uh, not doing them any favors. It's pretty selfish, right? Go outside and smoke if you really have to and quit. But that's much less harmful to children than being a single mom, not having a father around. I mean, it really really harms children and it harms society because single mom kids are responsible for the majority of, of crimes and destruction and dysfunction in society. And the welfare state is fundamentally driven by, I mean, if you take, I mean, if marriage rates had remained the same now as they were in 1970, there'd be almost no need for a welfare state. A welfare state is, right, the faceless alpha male of the state steps in and provides resources for men and women and the unborn because women can't keep their legs closed or put a condom on the man or pop a pill. Because, right, that's really complicated, right? I mean, the only reason we have a welfare state is because of the rise of single motherhood. Uh, and now, of course, there's a massive voting block and a cultural block which supports it and so on. And a single motherhood is a curse on society. And single fatherhood, too. It's just that, you know, 98% or whatever, 90% single moms. So watching this movie, there's this mad fantasy that somehow you can stitch together this Franken family from these monstrously self-involved and selfish people. And uh, this is not considered to be a bad thing. It's not portrayed as a catastrophe or, or a tragedy. You know, because all you ever hear about is sort of the noble blended families and the single motherhood and all this kind of stuff. You know, like, so you've got these three people who we presume, I don't know, maybe two of them are going to have sex. I don't know, it's hard to say which two or whatever. But... My God, I mean, wh what's going to happen? One of them starts dating, the, the other person, what are they going to do? I mean, the, so as soon as one of the three starts dating, they're going to put a disproportionate burden on the other two. 
right? Because they're not going to be available for childcare nearly as much anymore. Right, so let's say the sperm jacker starts dating. Well, she's going to be unavailable for a while, you know, at least a couple of nights a week, um, probably, uh, for, for childcare. Going to put a disproportionate burden on the others. They're probably going to resent it. And let's say that uh, she then wants to have the guy move in. I mean, what, what, I mean, what if they don't like him? What if he doesn't fit? What if he, whatever, right? I mean, it's just such a ridiculous mess that, I mean, ties, and, and I mean, my God, STDs. I mean, do you know that in sort of 19, in the 1960s, there were really only two STDs that were of any concern? And now there's over 20 of them that are significant problems. Like one in four Americans has an STD. I think it's even teenagers, one of, and like 8,000 new STDs every day in the United States. Marriage solved the problem of STDs, right? It's kind of important. <laughs> These are significant problems. I mean, a lot of this stuff uh, is penicillin-resistant, or I think Eddie Murphy said about herpes, just luggage stays with you forever, right? I've never had one, but I hear they're bad, <laughs> right? So, I mean, this is just important stuff, again, to, to point out that these problems were all designed to be solved by the institution of marriage. Now, yes, the government shouldn't have that much to do with marriage and so on, but unfortunately the government has a massive amount to do with, with sex reproduction and all that, right? You know, as Trudeau famously said, the government has no places in the bedrooms of the nation. Fantastic. Then... Don't subsidize single parenthood. Uh, don't punish marriage. Uh, don't reward. Uh, uh, you know. Don't don't um, tax and subsidize various arrangements of marriage. And if women uh, get pregnant, then the problems accrue to the family, um, right? And and that way, parents are willing to have fights about sexuality with their kids. Right now, with the welfare state, it's like, well, you know, I'll, whatever, right? But, of course, if the government... I mean, th people think that the government involvement in marriage has something to do with licenses or has something to do with whether there's gay marriage. I mean, that's nonsense. I mean, those are tiny, tiny, tiny aspects of the degree to which the government has involvement in marriage. I mean, the fundamental government involvement in marriage is, you know, public schools and the welfare state. I mean, yes, there are tax, tax aspects and this and that and the other. Oh, and alimony. And no-fault divorce. And child support. I mean, these are ways in which governments have massive involvement in marriage. Right, so until quite recently, there were only two reasons that were valid to get divorced. Only two reasons were valid to get divorced. Number one, cruelty. Right? Uh, mostly physical abuse. So if your, your husband generally, we, we're still processing the fact that the majority of victims of domestic violence are men, just as the majority of rape victims in America are men because of prisons. But generally it was, if your husband was beating you, you could get a divorce. That was sort of number one. And number two was adultery. So if you were being 
uh, if your husband or wife obviously cheated on you, you get a divorce. Sorry, I don't need to explain to you what adultery is. My apologies. I just uh, was trying to think of the next point and I stalled my tongue. And then no-fault divorce came in. And no-fault divorce combined with alimony is a ridiculous incentive to get divorced. If you're right, the majority of divorces, between 60 and 70% of divorces are initiated by women and the number one reason for divorce is cited is dissatisfaction. You know, I'm just not that happy with my marriage. So it's over. Now, in the past, you could, of course, not live together. I mean, it meant you couldn't get remarried. You could just not live together. And nobody could force you to live together. But you didn't get alimony or child support if you just happened to move to a different place, right? Alimony is a particularly ridiculous aspect of status laws regarding marriage. Because alimony is exactly the same as continuing to get paid after you voluntarily quit a job because you don't like it in the moment. So to take the typical example, if you're a wife and you get married, then you have a job called being a wife. And just as my job as a philosopher is to provide value to you, the listeners, my job as a wife will be to provide value to my husband. Whatever that is whether it's bringing money in uh, by working, whether it's taking care of the house, raising his kids, whatever it is going to be. Well, sex is not a value because sex is mutually pleasurable. I mean, it's a value. It's just not something that only a woman brings, right? So your job as a wife is to make your husband happy. And your job as a wife is to choose a man that, who's, who's going to make you happy. So you have this job called being a wife. Now, if you quit a job, one of the first things that happens is you don't get a paycheck anymore. Hello. How can this be complicated? If you have a job called being a wife and you quit your job, then why do you still get a paycheck? It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. I say, ah, well, the woman... She deferred her education and her earnings to be married. Yes, and she got paid for that. So if she's with a guy who makes $100,000 a year, and basically he pays for everything, then she's getting at least $50,000 a year worth of value for being a wife. That's her paycheck for being a wife. And given that women control like 80% of purchases, she basically has control over $80,000 a year. I mean, forget taxes, if you know, his take-home, whatever it is, right? So she gets control $80,000 a year. And that's her job. Now, if she quits her job, says, I don't want to be married to this guy anymore, fine, she can do that. Like, you shouldn't have to stay married if you don't want to stay married. But I don't understand at all the logic of, I'm quitting my job called being a wife, so now he has to pay me as if I was still his wife. Right? I mean, if I quit... It's like me quitting being a waiter and then showing up for the next 10 years demanding that people tip me anyway, even though I'm not bringing them food anymore. In fact, it's even I just mail the tips to me at home. A little sign there saying, I used to be a waiter here eight years ago. Mail your tips to me at this address. I, I like 15%. People would look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. You're not bringing us food. 
You're not telling us what the specials are. You're not mouth-wateringly describing a profiterole for us to eat, as I used to do when I was a waiter at a high-end restaurant. You quit your job. Now, what if you, what if your husband leaves you? Well, that's not you quitting your job. That's you getting fired, right? It's you getting fired. And if you get fired, well, uh, I don't see how you continue to get a paycheck anyway. Let's say I'm a shitty waiter. Drop half the food, spill hot coffee on the customers, go out for smoke breaks in the rush hour. I get fired. I mean, how much more ridiculous is it for me to post a sign in the restaurant saying, I got fired from this job. Oh, must be 11 years ago now. Because I was a crappy waiter. I stole. I cheated. Please send your tips to this address. I like 15%. People would look at that and say, what? If you quit, you certainly shouldn't get a paycheck. If you get fired, you certainly, certainly shouldn't get a paycheck. So if you have no-fault divorce and alimony, well, then of course what we need to do is make that a rule and say that anybody who quits a job or gets fired should still get a paycheck. Let's just make that a rule because that's obviously right for marriage, right? If you quit marriage or get fired from your marriage, then you should still get the money. Even though you're providing none of the services, you're not providing value to your spouse, you live in some other place. So even though I'm not being a waiter, even a bad one, even though I'm not being a bank teller, I, you know, if I quit, I still get fired. We all know what would happen, right? If you quit your job and you still get your paycheck, how many people are going to go to work? Well, this is exactly why nobody's getting married anymore. And this is why the divorce rate went up so high. Hey, wait a minute, I can quit my job. I don't have to provide a reason and I still get a paycheck? Woohoo! I'm down with that. Because I don't like my husband this week. That's why divorces went up 300% in the 1970s. This is why marriage is collapsing throughout the West. The welfare state fundamentally changes reproductive strategies. Rather than being very selective about who you have to pick because there's no backup other than moving in with your parents if you can. A welfare state allows women to shallow out what they want, basically <laughs> turn into guys. This is why the requirements of male beauty have gone up so high these days, right? This is why the six-pack has emerged, why muscles have emerged, why, you know, the need for hair and the chiseled chin and blue piercing eyes and why all this has emerged. Because women get resources from the state and therefore they don't need to choose quality men. They can only choose pretty players, right? Which they primarily choose so that their girlfriends will go, ooh, he's cute and funny. Right? So it shallows out women's preference for quality men. Because women don't want quality men anymore, men spend less energy and time developing their qualities. Which is why you've got, one of the reasons why you get this whole failure to launch generation, why these Men on Strike, as the woman who wrote the book uh, recently, I can't remember her name, as has. It's a, it's a worthwhile book. You get it on Kindle. It's worth reading. Men are on Strike. Well, this is why you have MGTOW. It's why you have uh, men going their own way and all this kind of stuff. Why would a man want to develop quality, which he can develop, right? How hard he's going to work, how many resources he's going to gather, his emotional maturity. These things are under your control. 
how good-looking you are is to a large degree not under your control. And so when the welfare state and the public schools, there's another massive size, public schools do daycare, right? Daycare from the ages of four or five to 17 or 18. It's ridiculously terrible. Because every, every time the state provides resources to women, women have less need or desire to choose quality men because they get their resources elsewhere. Right? Having, having the state subsidize child raising for women is like having the state subsidize sex activity for men. The state sends over a... Uh, and you don't even know it, right? It's not a prostitute like a prostitute, but the state will pay some woman to seduce you in a bar twice a week. What's that going to do to your capacity to develop meaningful adult relationships when your sexual needs are met by the state? Well, we all know what that would do to the quality and maturity of men. Right? And that is what happens when the faceless alpha male of the state strips money by force from men and women who are responsible and gives it to men and women who are irresponsible. It fundamentally changes what women want. So, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, rather than, like what, rather than and magazines aimed at girls which taught them, you know, how to be good homemakers uh, or, or be career women if that's what they wanted um, and, and, you know, here's some nice boys uh, in a suit and so on. What happened was the general zeitgeist changed so that now uh, there's a Teen Tiger Beat and all these kinds of magazines, they focus on sexuality enormously and they have an endless parade of, you know, baby-faced pretty boys, right? Like the Justin Biebers and the InSync's and the New Directions and all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, I go to malls. You got a problem with that? Right, that's really what happens is that girls then are, you know, cute and funny and fluffy becomes the deal, no matter how dysfunctional the person is, right? And that's pretty tragic. Because then they're trained not to look for men when they get older who have the necessary resources to support a family. And maybe that guy, and he probably is not the pretty boy. But somebody with some, you know, not the pretty boys can't, but, but somebody who has some real substance, somebody who has some earning potential, somebody who's mature, somebody who is uh, caring, stable, stable. Not a player. But women can afford to have sex with players and to be attracted to players because the faceless alpha male state is going to provide enough resources for them to get by. Now, will they be rich? No, it doesn't matter, fundamentally. Right? The difference between 100,000 and 120,000 is nowhere near the difference between zero and 20,000, right? A year. Right, it's that it's those, and and people on welfare again. This is off the top of my head, and I I read this a while back, but you know, including all benefits and subsidies and so on, they get like fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. And I don't think that's even counting public school, which adds another ten to fifteen thousand, right? Sixty, seventy thousand dollars plus. Well, that's enough. That's fine. But that will do. I mean, that's 
richer than just about anybody in history and it's richer than 98% of the world's population. No, maybe not 98%, but richer than 70% of the world's population, probably 80%. So they're doing well. And so women can focus on the pretty boys and this is where the metrosexual comes from, right? I mean, this is where the men's health magazine comes from. This old comedian joke, I don't remember who said it, but some comedian was saying, men's magazines of the past, what was it? How to connect your stereo. A couple of gay guys in suits. And an article on how chicks really dig love handles. Nobody got hurt, <laughs> right? It's not like women's magazines, in which apparently you have to liposuction your eyeballs in order to give men mind-blowing orgasms in bed. government's involvement in marriage has fundamentally mutated marriage so or, or, or child raising or child rearing and thus sexual selection what is it you always hear from women right? why do nice guys get stuck in the friend zone because women say I just don't feel that way about you I, 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 there's no chemistry I don't feel the sizzle I don't feel that tingle I don't right well what is that that's lust there's nothing wrong with lust but it's not something that you make central to your decisions about sexuality. I mean, sugar's nice too, but you don't make that central to your diet. And so women can afford to indulge in, I want the chemistry. What am I supposed to do if I'm just not attracted to the man? Well, first of all, look at your history of what it means to be attracted. Have you simply been exposed to unrealistic expectations? I mean, this is like porn addicts saying, well, I'm just not attracted to a real woman with real breasts and whatever, right? The natural cellulite of the female flesh that's not stick-thin stick thin Angelina Jolie style. When I saw a woman, uh, a teenager, 17 years old, a dancer, she had cellulite. It's okay. It's the way the way the way the body is for a lot of women. Say, so, well, I'm just not attracted. You know, I watch porn six hours a week, but I just don't find myself attracted to regular women. Maybe the problem is the porn, right? And if as as girls you grew up on a steady diet of six pack boy band guys with airbrush and no pimples and perfect hair and right then maybe your level or response to to what is attractive is a little off kilter i'm just saying maybe ah but women couldn't afford sizzle when they needed a man who was actually responsible sizzle is just lust and lust is not a basis for a lifelong relationship of course i mean of course not. I mean, the, the, the. so women who say, well, you know, I just don't feel that way about you. Why are women attracted to the bad boys? Because lust, right? Because in a time of combat, in a time of war, women would be more attracted to sociopaths because then they would be more likely to have, chil have children uh, and and. Not that it's genetic, but they would be more likely to have children who would be raised by the sociopath to be more brutal and thus, quote, win in a, in a time of, of conflict, right? When resources are short, 
brutality tends to win. When resources are plentiful, negotiation and win-win tends to win. Guys with a lot of money generally tend to date pretty women, right? Because they can afford them, right? And so when women get a lot of money from the state, a lot of resources from the state, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year in resources, then they can afford to focus on pretty men, on unstable men, on right? Because because they don't suffer the consequences of their own bad choices that children do and more responsible taxpayers do. And so the, the state has fundamentally reshaped romance, sexual relationships, attraction through the forced redistribution of resources from the responsible to the irresponsible, right? That but you tax diminishes, that but you subsidize increases. Lust is subsidized, lust increases becomes a central aspect of life. I mean, even Seventeen magazine gets into trouble regularly by talking about, you know, how to masturbate, what your clitoris is for. I mean, there's sex, 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 sex all the time. I mean, Cosmo and other, I mean, have, I mean, to me, shocking content. You know, graphic detail of what to do sexually to make a man climax in ways that make him, you know, squirt crude oil out of his ears. I don't know. All that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it, it's shocking constant sexual content. Now, why is there a shocking constant sexual content? I mean, society's become like, you know, if you go down to Vegas, there's just like porn everywhere, you know, and hookers everywhere, and it's just this madcap sexual... It's like being constantly cattle prodded with sex hormones all the time. But society's become like that. We've become sex-obsessed as a society, fundamentally because sex has been divorced from the economic realities of procreation and child-raising. So sex can be indulged in and of itself. In the same way that like food has been largely divorced from that which you need to survive, and so everybody eats crap and gets fat. Because the state so heavily subsidizes sexuality and its effects, which is babies, and STDs, which, you know, I would love to be, you know, in a free market, there would be insurance policies that would not cover STDs, you know, which responsible married people would take, and would cover STDs, right? You'd pay a hell of a lot more. There would even be insurance against pregnancy. At least I would think somebody would offer that. It would make good sense. And, you know, it would be, we will pay the costs of, the health costs of having the baby, and we will also pay to have the baby adopted and all that, right? Or if you want to keep it, then whatever. Premiums are ridiculous. But sexuality has been heavily subsidized, which means we've become a hypersexualized society. Where sexual attraction has, like, shockingly, in the, in the, it would be incomprehensible that sexual attraction would be the basis of a relationship. In the same way, it would be like saying, that which tastes the best to you in the moment should be the entire basis of your approach to eating. Right? That which doesn't ever make you feel uncomfortable should be the entire basis of your approach to exercise. It should never make you sweat. It should always be 
more comfortable to exercise than it is to sit on the couch. Right? If, if I were to put those things forward, that would be incomprehensible to people. It would be ridiculous. It would be like a joke diet book. Whatever tastes best for you in the moment should be the entire basis of your dietary plan. <laughs> Ooh, me like chocolate and Skittles, right? Exercise should never be uncomfortable, should never make you feel uncomfortable, should never be unpleasant in any way, shape, or form. I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? But making sexuality the basis of your relationships is as insane as making sugar the basis of your diet. Nothing wrong with sugar in your diet. Nothing wrong with sexuality in your relationships. Sugar tastes wonderful in your diet. And sexuality is wonderful in your relationships. But it cannot be the foundation. Right? Healthy sexuality, positive, loving, great sexuality is an effect of love. It is not the cause of a relationship, for heaven's sakes, right? That these things need to be said. But, but I mean, this is how much foundational elements of human identity are reshaped in the carved bloody channels of state coercion. I mean, even down to our erections and our female arousal mechanisms are fundamentally shaped by the bloody tidal shifting of resources at the point of a gun and debt and currency manipulation that is statism. Statism and statism and the violence of its laws, of its rules, of its regulations, of its subsidies, of its bans, of its prescriptions. Statism is like the complicated vessel that we all conform to in our very deepest selves. And statism fundamentally alters things like culture, like sexual arousal, like romance, like child raising. And so the idea that it's around gay marriage, that we have to sort of focus on how the state does things is madness. Gay marriage is like the very least of the aspect in which the state has fundamentally reshaped in a very tragic way. What it means to uh, be in love, to have children, to have a relationship, it's all fundamentally changed based on the state. So if you watch this film, My Sister's Sister, so I guess it's like it's like the status drinking game. So one of the ways that the status drinking game would work is you take a drink every time a character makes a decision that would be impossible or at least highly unlikely without the state, right? So uh, at the beginning the man says, "I decided not to take this job in such and such a location," right? Uh, I, because I just wasn't quite ready for it and this and that and the other. And, and later in the film, he basically says he's unemployed and I think he's in his early 30s. He's unemployed and he seems to... It, it's been a year since his brother died, which is which was something that happened before the movie. So we assume he's probably been unemployed for a year or more, right? <laughs> Doesn't really happen 
without the state, without unemployment benefits, without welfare, without whatever subsidies he's getting to, uh, to stay alive, right? Not going to happen. The woman decides to steal the man's sperm and have a baby. <clears throat> right? Doesn't really happen in a free society because she doesn't have the resources to do that. She can only do that because of the state. Right, so in the end, when um, they're all sitting there trying to figure out if the woman's pregnant or not with the guy's stolen sperm, it's only possible because the government is going to be providing uh, health care uh, and, and daycare and uh, a school and, and welfare and free roads and subsidized housing. And, right, this is all only possible. Now, the government is nowhere mentioned in the film. The power of the state is nowhere mentioned in the film. But the film is nothing but the power of the state. Like, water is really not mentioned much, if at all, in Finding Nemo. But water is almost in every single frame. It's everywhere. It's why the film is what the film is, right? It's like in The Sopranos, right? So the government is rarely mentioned in The Sopranos. I didn't watch too many of them, but I watched a few. The government is not really mentioned in The Sopranos, but everything that Tony Soprano and company do is based upon the state, right? The state has made uh, prostitution illegal uh, and drugs illegal and gambling illegal and all that. And, and therefore... These are all the activities, right? So you understand, even though the government is rarely mentioned, the government is in every frame. The government is the entire environment that makes the story possible. Now, in something like The Wire, the government is is quite often mentioned, but the whole environment is, is statism and statist status while the war on drugs and, and all that, right? So I'm sort of inviting you to look at the art that is out there and say how would this look without the government? How many of these people's choices are created, conditioned, enabled by the power of the state? And I can almost guarantee you that just about everything you see that is not fictional and animal-based, well, not fictional, sorry, my sister's sister is fictional, but it's not like an animal kids movie. Once you get animals, you usually don't have a government, right? No government in Finding Nemo, which is why he succeeds. If it was a government program, he'd get as lost as his son. But when you look at shows, TV shows, movies, try and figure out. It's an interesting mental exercise. Try and figure out how many choices the characters make are conditioned by the power of the state. And then you can go to the next level, the... The 25th level, the super paladin level. And you can look at the people around you 
people in your life, family members, friends, colleagues, lovers, and try and figure out how many of those people's decisions are based on the power of the state, whether they know it or not, whether it's acknowledged or not. But to what degree have they adapted themselves to a system of new universal state power? Maybe even unconsciously, and to what degree have their entire personalities been shaped by statism? Single motherhood, very hard to have and sustain without the state. So if their personalities, if they've been raised by in single motherhood, then that's one way in which their personality has been fundamentally affected by the state. You can think of many, many others. FDRURL.com forward slash donate. If you would be so very kind, these thoughts require calories and your cashola. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day.